This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello again, all you diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. I'm Christian Swain, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, Deeper Digs in Rock goes a little deeper, digging into diverse topics all connected to rock music in their own unique way. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you love the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, and you should, because we love you. Anyhow, you can support the project financially via Patreon or PayPal. Please visit rockandrollarchaeology.com for the link. One dollar a month, friends. Just one dollar to keep up the rockin'. Okay, business handled. We're good. We have a very smart, a very interesting guest today. So, let's get on with it. My favorite things here at the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is getting a chance to speak with one of the authors we use for our own research. These are the Herodotus. Oh, well, maybe it's Herodotai. Anyhow, these writers are the folks who do the first draft of rock and roll history, and they are crucial to our work. We admire these men and women who had pencil at the ready when the real shit went down, the ones who toiled to capture what it all means. So a chance to meet one of these scribes and do a little brain picking is always a treat. And of course, we also love to chat with the musicians who are still out there keeping up the rockin'. There is no rock and roll archaeology without one or the other. So what happens when someone comes along wearing both hats? Well, what happens is we have a great fucking time and a fun, wide-ranging conversation. So much so that the interview goes long and I end up putting out a two-part Deeper Digs in Rock. Today, we're bringing you part one of my discussion with friend of the show and all-around rock god, the music and culture writer for Esquire magazine, Jeff Slate. Jeff is a New York guy. Now, I'm West Coast all the way, but I think we made a connection. He is extremely knowledgeable, has all the right influences, and he bleeds rock and roll. Yes, 
He's got blisters on his fingers. He's got some real rock and roll bona fides and a great story to tell. So how does one go from wielding an axe on stage to picking up the pen and writing that first draft of rock and roll history? We'll talk about that journey. So you'll hear tales of teenage trips to New York City, growing up with the Marcellus brothers, the 80s, the 90s, how to start a band, get a little somewhere, an in-joke with Gene Simmons, tales of Pete Townsend, May Pang, and working with members of Bowie's band. What I like about Jeff is he gives it to you straight and strong. He knows what he likes, what he doesn't like, and he will tell you why. But he doesn't come across as arrogant. I would call it forthright and musically self-aware. He's big on Dylan, big on the mods, and the clash is ground zero for him. He takes a stand, and he's got the chops to make the case. So let's get to part one of my conversation with Mr. Jeff Slate. Everybody, I'd like to welcome Jeff Slate to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Some of you may know uh, Jeff from his writing, uh, certainly from Esquire magazine, but uh, you may or may not know that he's also an accomplished musician. So, hey, Jeff, welcome to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Hey, Christian. Hey, fellow archaeologists. How's everybody doing? <laughs> Hopefully everybody's doing good when they're listening to this. So, uh, Jeff, uh, you know, let's kind of start uh, at the beginning. Uh, you know, I believe you're a, a New York City born and bred guy. So how did you come uh, to the rock and roll world? I actually grew up in Connecticut, but my I had family here in the city. So I started coming. Man, believe it or not, I started coming to New York City on my own when I was about eight or nine years old. It was back in the day when parents would let you get on the Amtrak. I know, I know. It probably, you know, they probably should be put in jail. But Now, now this is the mid to late 70s, right? This is probably around 78 or 79. I I came in a bunch of times. New York City's not exactly like Disneyland at that point. No, no, no. But I, you know, my mom would put me on the train or my dad on the Amtrak train in Connecticut and Uh my sister would meet me at Penn Station, you know, right, you know, under the big board. And it was kind of, you know, I'd done it a bunch of times, so I didn't kind of think anything of it. But in retrospect, you know, the conductors would kind of keep an eye on you. And I, you know, I got pretty savvy pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and I really wanted to do it. You know, I started coming in as a young kid to see Yankee games and, oh, you know, so. go to Radio City with my parents and stuff like that. And got bit by the bug and knew I wanted to live here. My brother-in-law was a jazz uh, session guy, trumpet player. 
And my sister was like a chorus line person in on Broadway in a ballet profession. She was actually oh, really? a professional ballet dancer. Oh, wow. Of all the things to choose in the world, yeah, she chose the hardest thing in the world, yeah. harder than rock and roll music. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, yeah. Very few people ever get to, totally, to that totally. profession. But she made a living at that, and they, you know, they did oh, cruise ships and uh-huh. things like that. But uh-huh. you know, they and they they had a really great existence here in the in the seventies. I mean, I met you know. Branford and Winton Marsalis when they were like teenagers and oh and really because they because they knew my brother-in-law and yeah. and I mean it was funny by the time Branford played with Sting and I was in college here in, in New York at the time mm-hmm. he was like an old friend it was crazy I mean he was only probably 20 by that, that time right um, but any, you guys, anyway you so, guys grew up together well we knew each other a... fr- from the village vanguard from uh-huh. you know when we were both underage getting snuck in by <laughs> you know family members basically yeah yeah, yeah. so anyway I, I started coming in such a rock and roll story too it is too you know and and i and i you know i had a sister and and my brother-in-law like i said who were really into music they you know played me a lot of records that were really cool as did my brother who you know he had his firebird with his eight track player and i kind of grew up with some really cool music and also he had kind of not cool taste which was interesting because i figured out what i didn't like oh really life you know so So, where where did his taste come from like uh, like Boston well, he, and Journey and that kind of stuff. Yes, oh, well, the not commercial. That, that sort not of, as uh, bad as. But <laughs> well, his was much more, um, much more mainstream. So he would have, you know, alongside kind of the Beatles and uh, their solo stuff and uh, Led Zeppelin and the Who. He would also have, um, like you said, Boston. And you know, while Led Zeppelin wasn't necessarily my cup of tea. I understood the power and kind of magnetism as of it as I did Springsteen, who wasn't my cup of tea. But I, I liked a lot of elements of it, or I got what people saw in it. Whereas, like, you know, the Beatles and the Who and uh, the Faces really spoke to me. And, you know, Boston just did not. You know, right, like at all, right, right. <laughs> you know, and, and so uh, that was a real education. Conversely, would, it be, would it be fair to say you're more of an Anglophile uh, when it comes to rock? You know, it's music? funny. I don't ever think of it in those terms. And yet the music that I find, you know, speaks to me definitely is, you know, it's like American music played through the filter of the British sensibility. So right. I, you know, if, if I had to pick a band other than the Beatles to be sort of like, you know, who? Who is your the first, right, second right. favorite band? Mm-hmm. It'd be the Small Faces. I mean, okay. I think they are uh-huh. they are like you know they're a great singles band. They looked great. They played great. They had huge you know the screaming fans, but they also made really cool, adventurous R and B influenced records. And oh, they could what, what, one of the first real mod bands too. Yeah, absolutely. The first, yeah, you know, yeah, mod band in, yeah. in my estimation. And, you know, they were playing R&B and the blues when, you know, the Stones couldn't play a lick. <laughs> they just, you know, they were just so far and ahead of any of those bands who were really, in my estimation, kind of, you know, still fumbling around for a sound. And, you know, Ronnie Lane and Steve Merritt were writing amazing songs when 
you know, Mick and Keith were like, you know, still locked in a room by Andrew Lou Goldham trying to come up with their first song. So, right, right. Or, you know, buying, I, or I mean, people, hits for I, the Beatles, right, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people can take issue with that, but that's just how I see it. And from yeah. that grew, mm. you know, kind of this other, this alternate British invasion, which was the Kinks and the Who and Cream and, you know, these, these kind of left of center bands from, you know, the Stones and Dave Clark Five and the Yardbirds and the Birds. Uh, you know, some of those bands that were much more mainstream and less to my taste. Um, now, that's not saying, you know, I'm not saying I don't like the Stones, but I'm just saying if I had to choose, you know, if you put a gun to my head and you said, choose a record from this collection, and it was, you know, The Who and the Kinks and The Small Faces and The Stones, The Stones would be last. Right. You know, absolutely right. without a doubt. Certainly, And, and, and you, felt this, you felt this way back when you were like a preteen or like 13, 14? Oh, yeah. Right yeah, now, yeah. Huh? You know, when I was sort of, you know, 78, 79, 80 when I was like a young teenager. Yeah, in you're, my first you're, you're, you're a, you know, uh, the uh, the end of the baby boomer uh, right, age, right, 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 yeah. Right, and and so, you know, I was discovering all these bands via like my first garage band and like I said, my brother, my brother-in-law and my sister who just had these fantastic stereos and these giant systems like people used to have and these great record collections, reel-to-reel tapes, and, yeah. you know, really cool mm-hmm. vinyl mm-hmm. and would kind of let me go to town or I inherited a lot of stuff as they just kind of, you know, got tired of, you know, whatever. But they also nurtured, you know, like my my sister took me to see The Clash when I was, God, you know, like oh. 14 years old. Well, there you go. And, That's a moment. And it changed my life. You know, I mean, it, it really, she was just along for the ride, but mm-hmm. she recognized this was, you know, a band that everybody in New York was going to see. I needed to see them. She took me to see them. It was better than going to see, you know, whatever Beatlemania on Broadway or whatever was yeah, around it, at the it, time. It was the cultural moment for that age, like, you know, 79, yeah. 80. It was, yeah. they, they, but it, were, but it also, they were the band it also, They were. And it also gave me an appreciation for, you know, kind of a British viewpoint, a British sensibility. It solidified what I already liked and made me realize that the New York and, and especially the L.A. punk bands did not speak to me in the same way that certainly the jam and the clash and the pistols to a lesser degree uh-huh. spoke to me. You know, uh-huh. they, they just, they weren't speaking my language, my musical language, uh, my politics, my, you know, they came from a different sensibility. They came from a different, you know, Joe Strummer was, you know, a middle-class kid like I was, whereas, you know, the Ramones were, they didn't speak to me in the same way. They didn't have the same sort of artistic zeal and well, the, intellectual the maybe, curiosity. The Ramones kind of had a, you know, that tongue-in-cheek sort of thing, whereas The Clash were dead serious. Yeah, yeah. And the tongue-in-cheek thing to me was, was um, and again, people will take issue with this because I know right, people right. love the Ramones, <laughs> and they are they are absolutely ground zero for oh, most people. Yep. But to me, that, that tongue-in-cheek stuff was really clumsy. It wasn't clever or smart at all. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of quaint. Yeah. And, and quaint didn't cut it for me. I, I wanted something that cut deep and huh. was really meaningful. And, and to me, it didn't. I know I've had this conversation, believe me, with musicians and fans and whatever. And, you know, we, it's not that I, again, it's like Springsteen. It's not that I don't appreciate the Ramones and especially for what they are in retrospect and, and were at the time. But that wasn't what I put on my turntable over and over and over. I listened to them. I digested it. I moved 
moved on. Whereas with the the Clash and the Jam and some of those those bands, um, they stayed on my turntable for like months at a time. Right, right, right. And I get it from the L.A. side. I mean, I grew up with that L.A. punk scene, and you know, it was kind of nihilism. You know, it was just aggression. Uh, you know, and, and having a good time. And well, getting out yes, there and the, I mean, there beers. were. It didn't. Have yeah, there were there late. were bands though that. There were bands, though, that, you know, there were things I liked about them. And, and John Doe's like a dear friend now. So I have, you know, I, I certainly appreciate. Well, I don't really consider um, X like punk. They're they're they, a whole exactly. different strain. It's, it's similar, not like the similar Dead to Kennedys the or not, the Black right, Flag right, right, or these right. guys. I mean, yeah. they, or even they, Hanoi Rocks, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Oh, interesting. Um, so anyway, I, you know, the, the Clash. You know, I had been up to that point like 90%, well, let's say 75% Beatles, 10% Elvis and Little Richard and Chuck Berry. And then another, you know, the rest of it was sort of small faces who, you know, and, and, and the faces. And there wasn't a lot of room for anything else. But when I discovered bands that were a little bit younger, a little closer to my age, like The Clash and, you know, certainly The Jam, because Paul Weller was so young at the time. Yeah. Um, those were people that I could identify with and that I could go see. You know, you couldn't, I mean, you could go see The Who, but you could, it wasn't, and I did It wasn't The, the Who King. of, you know, the, their greatest uh, artistic uh, Yeah, I mean, I saw, my brother took me to see um, The Who, their first tour with Kenny Jones, and, and yeah, I, saw, I saw that he also took He also took me to see The Kinks when they were on the one, what became One for the Road, the one that was filmed for the for the video, the, the Providence show. Uh-huh. Um, that was maybe 79, 80. And, you know, those were life-changing events because they were, you know, seeing Seeing The Who, even the Kenny Jones version of The Who, is a life-changing experience for like a 12, 13-year-old kid as we're seeing The Kinks and just having like every single song be a song that was burned in your brain that you could, you went home humming. You know, right. that which was not the case with the bands of my generation that I was seeing. They were harder to digest and things like that. You know, so, you know, seeing The Clash with my sister and Bowie and and, you know, The Who and and The Kinks, those were really uh, formative experiences that kind of opened my mind to not just the power of being in a big crowd with people who love this music, which, you know, I had a girlfriend who liked Rush and we went to see Rush and it just it gave me nothing. Whereas, you know, seeing the kinks and those songs that were just so great and the playing, you know, Heat, Ray and Dave up front were just so mesmerizing as a pair, um, as was Pete and Roger and, and John to a certain degree. And, you know, and certainly the front line of the clash is just like, you know, one of the best front lines ever from the standpoint of just explosiveness on stage. Those really, you know, those things really stayed with me. You know, it's hard to describe to like my son, or people, you know, young people now, when they ask about The Clash, it's like, oh, you know, best band I've ever seen. Better than you two? Oh, please, not even remotely in the same league. Wow, you two are pretty great. Nope. (laughs) You know, it's like, come on, Springsteen, he's really great. I'm like, not even remotely the same caliber of show. I mean, from the moment The Clash stepped on the stage, the moment they left the stage, it was just like this explosion of just sheer power that was, you know, just undeniable to even, from beginning you know, to I remember end, the, yeah. you just walk from beginning to end. And I, I remember, stunned. I remember the first show I went to see with, with my sister, it was at one of the Bonds shows. I went to one of the matinees and I didn't know 
probably 75% of the songs because they were playing mostly Sandinista and, and it, it was not stuff yet. I was, right. well, it was out, but I wasn't super familiar with it beyond oh. Mag 7 and a couple of, and the, obviously I knew London Calling and the earlier records, but you know, they, they, you know, they played like a seven minute, 10 minute Armageddon time. And it was like, wow, what is this? And Grandmaster Flash opened, no, was maybe it was Curtis Blow, but anyway, uh, and the, Oh, God, the Bush Tetras, there were two opening bands. And it was really like, whoa, this is, you know, really not what I've ever seen in my life before. And it was, you know, life-changing. So, so, so that yeah, led me... That, that is yeah, that the, led me the to, rock and roll moment for you. It is. And, you know, I had been in garage bands that were not serious. Mm-hmm. Um, they were guys who wanted to play music, and all of them still play music, but they didn't see it as, you know, this is going to be my life and almost, you know, to the detriment of everything else and nothing else. And around that time, maybe 83, 84, you know, sort of after I had digested all of this and also seen Bowie and a bunch of other people, you know, I met up with a guy uh, named Scott Sherrod, who's Grammy nominated and, and, you know, still does it for a living. Uh, and we formed the band that became, that you mentioned, the Mindless Thinkers. Mindless Thinkers, right. Yeah, right. And, and we were, you know, it was funny. We started so this is that your band. First, this is your first real, say, professional real band. band. Right. Yeah, because we were playing original music to the exclusion of almost anything else. We played, you know, in, a, in an hour and 15 minutes or an hour set, we'd play one or two covers, maybe three. Right, right. And the rest was original music that got better and better over the course of the band which in in real terms only existed for maybe about 18 months but it was funny in 84 and 85 existing for 18 months meant you got on the college circuit, you made a single, you made an album, you got signed, you started opening for, you know, the DBs and, you know, we opened for Steve Jones's band Checkered Past and we opened for, you know, and he, he gave us our name, you know, we had a really terrible name <laughs> and played, played with him in Providence. And it, you know, we said, give us a name to him and Clem Burke, I think it was. And they said, Oh, come back after the show. We went back after the show and they were trashed, of course. Uh-huh. And he said, you, you guys, are the mindless thinkers and it was like <laughs> you know I, I saw him recently and I reminded him of this well, he was, ah, that's a good a good name <laughs> you know <laughs> like he shouldn't have given it away you know right yeah 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 so the other thing you do is uh, is you write articles and uh, primarily for Esquire I think there's a couple of other magazines uh, uh, rock seller magazine uh, title I know you've done a couple articles for Rolling Stone as well so I think your last article for Esquire is actually uh, a sit down with Steve Jones right? Yep, sure is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's get back to the mindless thinkers. So that's in the mid 80s. And this is where you kind of find your calling, huh? Yeah. Well, yes. Um, And yet bands like that, you know, burn bright and burn briefly. We, first of all, when you're 18 and you're given any kind of platform, you know, you're not prepared to handle it at all. And even the modest platform we had playing colleges and making, you know, kind of records for independent offshoots of the majors and things that we did took a real toll. I mean, you're still, you're trying to graduate high school. You're in your Chevy Chevette or whatever we had Ford Escort at the time. And, Lo- and loaded with drive. all the equipment in the boys. Oh my God. And, you know, on each other's nerves and in dressing rooms and on stages and fighting and everybody's got a different idea of, um, you know, where they want to go and 
you know, they're all discovering different music and the, the drummer doesn't see things the same way you do. And, you know, me and the bass player, uh, who's, you know, still my, probably my best friend in the world, but we just saw things differently because you're growing so fast at that point, but you're also really unforgiving as an 18 year old in how, you know, you deal with relationships. So, you know, it's very fuck you, fuck you, no, fuck you. You know, it's very Very that. Right. And so, uh, you know, that band, you know, we, we basically all went off in different directions for college. And, you know, I assumed I would come to New York, find two or three other guys, start a band and just recreate that momentum. Well, you know, 10 years later, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it took me, it took me a really long, it does. And it seems, but yeah, sure, I'll do that. And you, you don't realize that finding that kind of chemistry is incredibly difficult and is impossible to recreate, you know, especially just, you know, the doors opening and, and look, it's also really easy to be playing clubs in, you know, Hartford and New Haven and Worcester and Springfield and Providence and New London and even Boston relative to, hey, I'm playing Newark and Manhattan and Brooklyn. And, you know, those are it's it's a step up. I mean, we had played CBs. Uh, and a couple of other places as the mindless thinkers. But, you know, we had by that time, you know, it was a good name that people came to the show thinking, yeah, they thought they knew who you were or they'd maybe heard of it or they'd seen us in The Voice or, you know, there was the thing called the Soho News at the time that covered a lot of bands and Uh wrote, wrote us up at one point. And, you know, so people, you know, you had, you know, if you had... Jeez, you know, 50, 60 people in the audience. That was kind of a normal night. And you'd, you'd get, you know, maybe three, four, five hundred dollars from the club. And I mean, that's just unheard of now. Oh, and, yeah. oh they um, still pay the same. <laughs> yeah. As, as, well, as, especially as 18 year olds, we kind of took that, prof, you know, sort of professional leap for granted. You know, you don't, you just don't realize that, that it's, it's much harder than that. So anyway, I came to New York and really struggled. Uh, the music scene, this is now sort of 85, 86, 87, was really bad. You know, it, it had moved heavily toward, you know, people who loved Sting and U2 and synthesizers. And, and that was kind of, um, except for, to me, kind of Big Audio Dynamite and the Beastie Boys and some other stuff that was percolating, you know, left of center that was cool much right. of cool stuff, much of right. that didn't speak to me mm-hmm. and there just weren't a lot of records i mean i think i remember when keith richards first solo record came out i was like oh my god people playing actual instruments you know i mean it was really you know it was really hard to find records that you really loved even by people that you held up as kind of paragons i remember you know townsend made some great records and bowie made some not so great records but had their moments well, yeah, Tin you know, was iggy pop made some good the, records yeah. and there were people you know putting on great shows and making good records but it was it just didn't it didn't speak to me. So, you know, I continued doing it. Well, the um, 80s were superficial. You know, you can probably blame MTV to start with. And, uh, uh, you know, the synthesizer becomes uh, huge. Uh, you know, the DX7 comes out and anybody can now make uh, a lot more sounds that they could before. And, you know, music, uh, you know, music weaves and changes. And uh, the, the latter half of the 80s, yeah. Being in L.A., I had to deal with the hair metal band. So I, I hear you. It was, it was tough. I mean, you know, it was, it was funny. I, 
meantime, though, I have to say, I was assimilating all these sounds, and and I was also dipping into a lot of music that had passed me by. You know, I went to see Iggy at the Ritz, maybe 86, 87, 88. I, I, I don't really remember. And that led me to, you know, I had kind of, I had raw power as a teenager, but I don't think I had the other Stooges records. I certainly didn't have anything beyond the idiot or, you know, the Bowie produced records. Right. Uh, so I dug back into that music. And, and I mean, another, another one was I was, uh, while I was at NYU, I interviewed a lot of people for various, you know, I was a sort of budding journalist. So I was stringing for, you know, local papers and, um, you know, papers from Connecticut, my hometown. And also I had a talk show at NYU, kind of a, a take off a riff on Letterman or, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, we always had musicians on. And, you know, in that I was meeting people, um, one of them totally off my normal beaten path was Gene Simmons, who, you know, we spent an afternoon at Electric Lady and, you know, while he was producing Don Dokken, a, a solo record by Don Dokken of all people. Yeah. And afterward, he kind of took me aside and said, look, you know, you have a real interest and you have a real drive. And I recognize that, you know, I, are you a Kiss fan? And I said, I'm, I'm not. You know, I never was. It just it didn't speak to me. But all of my friends were. He said, listen, come to a show. Bring your friends. I'm sure they'll all be thrilled to meet the band. It's part of what we do. You know, just call up the office, gave me a little card with a number on it. And sure enough, you know, every, you know, kid I grew up with, when I told them this story, I'd be <laughs> home at like, thank you. They were like, oh, my God, take me to the you know, So we'd go. Right. And, you know, then I went with another friend and then I went with another friend. So I ended up going to like probably seven or eight KISS shows. Oh, wow. And, you know, it didn't really move. This was post makeup, believe it or not. And, and it oh, didn't really right. do anything. Yeah. The mid 80s when they didn't really do anything up, right. for me. But I saw how it did move people. They weren't bad songs. They're, you know, they're, yeah. you know, the, you know, it's, it doesn't, it's not my music, but I, I understood why it was someone else's music. And I think that's important as a, as a musician to sort of, it's all research. It's all, yeah. you know, you're yeah. trying to keep your ears open. What can I take from, you know, I could feel Iggy and Alice Cooper and the New York Dolls and the Beatles and Black Sabbath and Zeppelin and all of those things assimilated into uh, what they were trying to do. And and so, you know, I saw all these shows and I can't say I'm a fan, but I have an appreciation of what they did and certainly the longevity of it. Oh, completely. Um, I completely agree. I mean, uh, and Gene and it was Simmons funny because is like I, the greatest businessman in the history of rock. Yeah. And I would I would go see I you know, we'd go back and every, my friends would get their pictures taken. She would come up to me. He's like, so are you a fan yet? I'd say, <laughs> nope. <laughs> you know, not a fan yet. And we'd laugh about it. I mean, he he appreciated that I wasn't easily won over you know, by sort of the theatrics and the communal nature of right, their shows. Right. And, you know, we crossed paths when they did the reunion and I went to the, the 96 shows and the reunion. And I, you know, we oh, with, uh, with Peter had, and Ace, had right. kind of the running joke, you know, yeah. well, so now, and I'm like, yeah, look, I get it. I get it. It's, <laughs> it's not for me, but it is for, for them. millions and, and millions I, of kids I, out there. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And you know what? Anything that leads, you know, thousands, if not millions of kids to pick up a guitar and start a band in their garage. Can't be all bad. Right. Can't be all bad. Right. So, right. so you got to give them their due in many respects. So, so anyway, you know, while the, the lay of the land was a little bit barren, 
I went back to the music that I knew and loved, and I was so. Are making, you are you at NYU at this time? And you, you mentioned I, that. So you, yeah. You're, and did you enter I, into the journalism uh, school? Yeah, I was. I was in uh, uh, journalism school, and then I took a year off, worked in politics. I actually went to law school here in New York as well, and I did that. And it was, you know, part of it was just trying to sort of stave off reality, and part of it was I, you know, my family's always been seriously involved in politics. And I thought that might be something I was going to do for a living. Meanwhile, you know, for, for pocket money, I was still doing music and making like, you know, my little demos and trying to find a way musically. Right. Fast forward to the early nineties. And I had, you know, was still in bands, still playing shows, bass for hire, Hammond for hire, playing with people on Bleecker Street, the things you do as a kind of young guy trying to find your way musically. And I had a real early 90s burst of creativity and songwriting. And, you know, I bumped in uh, literally like I ended up through some mutual friends at Tommy Hilfiger's birthday party. And, you know, I wasn't supposed to be there. And in walks Pete Townsend, who the mindless thinkers had actually opened for his brother, Simon, in the 80s. And so uh-huh. I went over and like, what are you doing here? And I opened for your brother, Simon. And he let me play your guitar because my guitar wasn't working. And he's like, ah, oh, that bastard, you know, what are you doing here? And he had missed his flight and ended up there. And it was funny. We, we hit it off. He knew some people I knew and a big group of us ended up going out drinking. He was with this guy, um, Richard Barnes, who had been his college roommate and had actually named the who. And, you know, as people who had regular lives and regular jobs went off as the course of the, you know, the night kind of went on and on by daybreak, and many drinks later, it was just me and Pete and Barney. Right. And we were in there like, oh, we're going to go back to the hotel. You want to come back and keep going? Or, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to head home. Like, oh, we'll drop you off, get in the cab. And it, what are you doing? And I said, oh, we're going back to London tomorrow. What are you doing? I said, funny, I'm, I've got, I'm going to London. I'm doing an acoustic tour of a couple of places in England. And then I'm going over to Paris and whatever. And they were like, oh, you should call us and we should, you know, go get coffee. And Barney and Pete both gave me their number. And I'm like, all right, well, that's nice. Totally ridiculous. Yeah, totally <laughs> ridiculous. I'm, you know, I'm obviously not going to call Pete Townsend because that's <laughs> ridiculous. But I did when I was over there call Barney and he's like, oh, you should call yeah, you should call Pete. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. But anyway, as they were putting together Tommy, uh, the Broadway show, you know, I was remained on their radar. Pete started dating my girlfriend's best friend. We started double dating. We got to know each other. We ended up at the same parties. We realized we had a lot of similar tastes in books and movies and <clears throat> music too, you know, and, and we really enjoyed each other's company, you know, ended up at a party. I, I don't even think he knew I played, um, because I, I kind of avoided bringing it up because oh, I didn't want to yeah, okay. ruin things. Mm, you know, right. you don't want to yeah. be the guy because yeah. he was always complaining about people saying, oh, this here's guy a demo. Wants that. Yeah, yeah. Seriously, you'd go out drinking with him and or out to dinner and people would interrupt you, you know, like in the middle and they would not leave. They'd lean over the table. They'd be in his face. They'd be a little bit drunk and they'd be, I've got a band and we, you know, whatever. I, I made a real point to avoid that. And so, um, fate uh, stepped in, you know, yeah, fate stepped in and, um, he was going out on the psychoderelic tour and I, you know, asked me to come along and we ended up every night in the bar after the shows, just talking about, 
of, you know, what I wanted to do. And he's like, oh, you should come over and we've got this studio and eel pie and, you know, we'll do the demo there and you can use my touring band and blah, blah. And I, you know, I ended up, you know, he and his partner and Tommy put up the money who was his partner and Tommy was a huge fan of mine. I think it wouldn't have been for this guy, John Hart, who really pushed it along financially. And, you know, Simon was kind of the day-to-day producer and Pete just sort of put his name on it. Mm. And Mark Brzezicki played drums and Josh Phillips played keyboards. I mean, had this amazing band, you know, and th- from this basically. Is the badge, right? No, this is this is the precursor to the badge. Okay. But the songs that came out of that mm-hmm. and the the learning I did, because what happened then was, you know, we had a demo tape. I didn't like it. Pete didn't like it, but we're kind of obligated financially to at least get it around. Well, then I'm sitting in meetings with Sony and Atlantic and, you know, Geffen and all these people. And even though nothing came of that, you're in the door at that point. Oh yeah. You've got, you know, you're, you're at, you're at Bernie Taupin's restaurant with Pete at the head of the table, whining and dining these managers and A&R people. And they remember that, you know, so a year later when, you know, Atlantic gave me some seed money and, and I, you know, a little production deal and I made some more demos and I went in and I remember really vividly, they were, they were looking for in this meeting, they were telling me, we really are looking for white seal because seal was really big at the time. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I don't, I don't do dance music and I don't, dance. I'm not really a crooner. And they were like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I kind of want to do traffic, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I was, you know, I had this guy who like played, he played Hammond and he played flute and they were like, yeah, we're not doing uh, that. And I, yeah. you know, but, but they had given me some seed money and that was then the beginnings of the badge. Cause the people I met through just playing and playing and playing in New York city and London and, you know, LA were the people, you know, led me to the guys who played on the first badge record, which was for, in my, from my point of view, my first real model modern artistic statement, grown up statement. So that's about 98, 2000s, early 2000s. We do another record, start hitting the road, start going to England every three or four months, just doing like, you know, yeah, one night or night, 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 night. Right. Yeah. And, and building an audience because, you know, it's much easier to build an audience, certainly with old fashioned faces, small faces, who's sounding rock and roll, easy to build an audience there in in the UK, certainly, you know, the era of Oasis and the Stone Roses and the Verve and, you know, all these bands, you know, yeah, which Blur and Radiohead and early. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everybody was enamored with that. And, and you would get people who would come to your shows and they would come up to you afterwards and be like, I saw the small faces and the, <laughs> these are older guys. And then yeah, you get younger yeah. people there who were, you know, just kind of fans of that kind of music. And you'd be, I mean, we were on TV and on the BBC in relatively short order, you can't do that in the States. I mean, it's just impossible. You can crack a market maybe, but you can't crack, you know, the BBC is like, you know, national radio basically. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, you're doing you're like a lot German of TV shows and you're, right. you're getting a lot of ears in really short order. And, and so, but like anything, um, it, it burned bright, but burned briefly because, you know, the guitar player had some personal issues and, um, the lineup shifted a couple of times and it just got to the point where, you know, for me, it had kind of run its course. And so here I am sort of late 2000, you know, late 
2000s, trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And, you know, went to, I think it was May Pang's 60th birthday party, ended up in a jam session, looked around the room with all these great musicians and thought, you know, somebody took a picture and was like, wow, that's a really great band. And it was, you know, it was like, and it turned out it was sort of like Steve Holly and, you know, the guys from Elephant's Memory. And, you know, I mean, these are people who had a history. And I thought, well, if these guys want to play with me, I'm just going to start making phone calls. And I had songs that sounded like certain things. So I had some Bowie kind of ish tracks. And I thought, well, I remember Earl Slick's name on records as a kid growing up. Double Fantasy, oh, and Milk yeah. and Honey, and Season of Glass, and you know all the Bowie records that I grew up with, and and called him up, and we. It's one of those weird things. It's like you either hit it off with people or not. He was one of those guys. It was just like we were old friends instantly. Right. I don't know why. Right. Um, we had a lot of mutual friends, and that always helps. But you know, I mean, that doesn't mean it's going to mean anything or last. And so we did some sessions, and we re- realized really quickly that we were having fun. Um, did the same thing with Carlos Alomar, you know, to a lesser degree friends, it was more musical colleagues, but, um, but yeah, Slick and I were like fast friends almost from the minute we, we connected. It was a weird thing. And so, you know, so now, so now we're getting closer to the, to your solo work, which you've been doing, I think since 2010, uh, you, you released uh, a single called Dreamtime, right? Right. Right. And Slick and Carlos were both on that. Alex Alexander, from who was in the original version of The Badge, who played with Bowie as well. Gail Ann Dorsey, who played with Bowie. Yeah. Um, and it sounds nothing like Bowie, but, you know, it had kind of the makings of something new for me and different and, a, you know, it was like a different turn. Mm-hmm. But what it also what it also taught me and what I always tell people when they're like, you know, how are you playing with Steve Holly? He was in Wings or Lawrence Juber or Slick yeah. or any yeah. of these guys. I'm like, you just ask, you know, they can only say no. So whoever your hero is on the guitar. And for me as a young kid, Slick was really like, you know, he was both a guitar hero, but he was accessible. I mean, you're not going to be friends with Jimmy Page. And I, oddly enough, I am kind of friends with Jimmy Page, but that's a whole other <laughs> he thing. Says, he but, says after he says, you're not going to be friends with Jimmy Page, right? right. Well, you're not, you're not going to be playing with Jimmy Page, but, but Slick yeah, was a yeah, guy yeah. who felt like, he felt like, you know, touchable, attainable, mm-hmm. a, a, a normal person, so to speak, mm-hmm. if, if, if only in rock star terms. Right. And so, you know, my advice to, to people, People, especially, you know, young-ish people who are getting into this, who are like, oh, man, it's so hard and I can't get there. You know, I'm like, just keep asking the question. Don't be afraid to ask the question. I need help writing. I need help with guitar. I need a better drummer. I need a, you know, whatever it is. Don't be afraid to say, hey, will you play on my demo? Because you never know. Brian Eno might produce you. <laughs> Earl Slick might play guitar oh. for you. You know, Jimmy Page might play. You know, you might end up on stage with Pete Townsend or Sheryl Crow. You don't know where those things are going to lie. Right. And where yeah. those things are going to end up. And um, anyway, so, yeah, so we're now at the kind of solo. I, I might I might you know, throw in that you, you want to put some time and effort in and make sure that you've, you know, you've you paid some dues. You have written some songs that, uh, you know, probably uh, sound pretty good before you start asking uh, some of those guys, because you did well, put in that, the time and effort. I mean, you know, it's, it's true. It's true that when Slick, you know, we we talked on the telephone. And he said, you know, send me the demo. And I sent him the demo. He liked it. Now, it 
it was a demo. It wasn't good. No, but the song, the song's the song. But there was, he heard, he had heard enough demos in his life that, because I listen to it, I'm like, I, I still say to myself sometimes, like, I don't understand why these guys will play with me, <laughs> you know, but, but by the same token, you know, you're the worst. You can't assess your no, own material. You're always your worst, your own worst critic. Yes. A, a lot of these guys have heard worse. They've played on worse for a lot of money mm. and they're looking for fun stuff to do too. You know, they want to play with new people and people who have excitement and intellect and, you know, they just connect with on whatever level. So some people you connect with on a personal level, some people it's humor, some people it's the kind of books you read, some people it's none of the above, but you'll, you know, you cobble together the money to pay them and then you connect on some other level. Right. So I think it's, um, you know, you don't know, you're never going to open the doors if you don't keep asking the questions and you don't keep at it. But yes, you're right. You do have to deliver the goods when push comes to shove. So I, but you also can't minimize your own talent by saying, I'm not good enough. You've got, if you don't have the balls to say, I'm calling up Earl Slick, I'm going to track down his phone number and I'm going to email him from his website or whatever and connect somehow and make that phone call and have that conversation. All he can say is no. Right. But if you don't have the guts to make the call in the first place, he's never, he never has the opportunity to say yes. Not everybody has that. And, and I understand that. But you got to get up and swing the bat is what you're saying. You've got to swing the bat. And I think that's the hardest thing for most people because you have to get to the point where you've, can take a hundred you know, like fastball. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least take a swing. Yeah. And, and that is, that's something you can't teach people. No, I think, no. you know, that is something that you either have or you, you don't have. And, and that is driving ambition. That is, um, you know, not teachable. Maybe, right. I, you know, I don't know. I, right. you know, I, I, you know, I, <laughs> that's the part that, that kind of the mystery in all this. Cause you, you meet people like Tom Petty and he'll tell you, I had no other choice. True. He left him, he burned every bridge and left himself no other choice. But by the same token, he had the guts to do that. Not everybody that's, maybe that's, does. Yeah. That's, that's a tough way of life, um, you know, yeah. and, and ha- yeah. much harder today than, uh, you know, it was uh, back when, when you and I were growing up and certainly before that when it was all brand new. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think, you know, but, you know, and also you have to remember the terrain had changed. Uh, and I was forced to kind of figure out alternate ways of after the badge kind of imploded alternate ways to make money, which led me to writing about music because I loved it so much. Yeah, let's, and, let's get into that before I get into your three uh, albums, because I do want to touch on that. But you, you went to NYU, you, you, you studied journalism, you're also playing music. And, and really, if you could be a music, I would ask if you had to choose one or the other, obviously you would choose musician. But um, let's talk about the writing how you know how did that kind of grow uh into uh you know where you 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 know you're writing for rolling stone and esquire magazine i've got a picture of you sitting on a porch in san francisco those were happy times we were so naive and all the chances that we took then such simple times It's so hard to recreate the love we felt then Cause it was so much complicated than it was 
Okay, we left you with a cliffhanger. That means you got to come back and catch the conclusion of our discussion with Mr. Jeff Slate. I'm Christian Swain, and this is Deeper Dings and Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Thanks again to Jeff Slate, and thank you for listening. Until next time, keep up the rockin'. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.